News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about addiction this morning because we're still trying to understand how addiction works. Think about that. If we could figure out how addiction works, there's so much we could change. So many people who could be helped, so many issues that could be dealt with. But where do we start? There's a popular misconception out there, and then I'm sure you've heard this or thought about it or talked about it with someone, that addiction is actually about willpower. But learning about molecular genetics and advances in that field is actually changing that. Now, Dr. Carla Kahn is an associate professor of neuroscience at Brown University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. How is molecular genetics changing what we know about addiction? Well, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, there's been an explosion in the types of techniques that we're able to use to sort of understand um, how genes basically work in the brain. Um, and so this includes some sequencing technology and also some genome editing technology. So a lot of the information that we understand now comes from animal models where it's safe to do these types of experiments. And we know that each of the uh, cells in your brain has your genetic code stored in these really long strands of DNA. But for all that DNA to fit into a cell, it needs to be packed really tightly. And this is achieved by the DNA winding around these proteins. Um, these proteins are called histones. And areas where the DNA is unwound contain active genes. And these active genes then can code for proteins. And the proteins are the things that do the work inside of the cell. And so what we understand now is that alcohol and um, addictive substances can actually change which genes get turned on and which genes get turned off. Um, they can also change the, the form of each gene. So our genes don't encode just for one type of protein, but our genes can encode for many types of proteins. And so uh, some of the work that we do actually looks at a switch from one version to another version. So now that we have the capabilities to basically zoom in to the parts of the cells where our DNA resides, we're discovering this whole other world of, of how our genes can be expressed and changed dynamically in our brain. Okay, so I have questions. So does that mean <laughs> that, the, so everybody's DNA is unique, so does that mean that our reaction to um, alcohol or drugs is also potentially unique? I would say this isn't quite understood at the individual level yet, but there's definitely a potential for each of these reactions to be unique. For example, your life experience can affect how quickly your genes get turned on or on, on or off, or which genes get turned on or off. We know that early life stress or um, post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, can affect how open the DNA is around uh, stress-related genes. So um, that can result in increases in stress responses to stimuli that wouldn't typically affect people. Okay, and so then if a gene gets, say, turned off, uh, that needs to be turned on, is that something that we can do some work into? Or does the, the more you drink, does that affect how often it turns on or off? Like, how does this happen with addiction? Does does the addiction wear down the mechanism of those genes? Well, I think that's actually a really important point because 
what this data is showing us is that continued consumption of alcohol or any kind of substance like cocaine or methamphetamine or nicotine or heroin. Um, so all of this, so continued substances can um, sort of change this dynamic range in a really serious way. So we're starting to get a handle on exactly how it is that these substances can change the proteins inside of our cells in the brain. And the consequence of that is that um, small changes like how one cell is connected to another cell can be affected and that can actually affect our behavior because it's our connection between cells in our brain that drives some of our behavioral responses or our memories. And it's very important to study this in the context of memory because um, memories are what trigger cravings. And I think cravings are the one thing that we really don't have a good handle on at a mechanistic and molecular level yet. It's so interesting that all of this has become, it's changing the conversation, isn't it, Dr. Khan? But it used to be willpower, oh, you just need to try harder. But now there's much more, like a much deeper meaning to all of this. I agree. Um, it's changing the conversation and it's changing how we think about how to treat addiction as well. Because we know now um, that antidepressants and mood stabilizers, for example, can change how DNA is modified inside of our brain cells. We don't yet know how it can change the types of changes we get with alcohol and drugs of abuse, but we know now that it's possible. And so that can change how we think about the types of um, treatments that we do for addiction. We also are starting to discover how our lifestyle can affect how our brain um, uh, works in the context of how our genes are expressed. Sleep, for example, is really, really important. Um, to having uh, uh, really healthy gene expression in your brains. So is uh, a proper nutrition and exercise. Um, and um, there are even some studies that show sort of intensive meditation can affect um, how active your genes are expressed in your brain. So this is going to be quite revolutionary in treating addiction potentially, right? Like how, how far along are we in this research? I would say we're in pretty early stages right now. Almost all of the research that's done in this realm is still done in animal models. And part of the reason why is that in order to really get a good understanding of what's going on, we need to be able to do genetic manipulations, which we do not want to do in humans. Um, but uh, so these types of manipulations in humans, for example, are much, much farther along in type diseases like cancer, for example. There's mRNA-based therapy. So mRNA is the direct product of the gene. So genes get transcribed into mRNA, and then the mRNA goes on to make the protein in each cell. And so a lot of cancer therapies right now, for example, are focused on the mRNA. And so um, if we can change the mRNA level of things, we might be able to change how the proteins are working inside of our cells. We're a long way from um, using these types of therapies in the context of addiction, but um, use of these in other types of more fatal disorders, um, I think, can sort of build pathways that we need to be able to look at this in the context of um, disorders associated with mental health. Right. So even though we're a long ways then from using it for addiction, does it just at least maybe help to change the conversation around it so that we understand the mechanics of it better? That's exactly what it's doing. I think it's really helping us reframe how we think about how alcohol and addictive substances affect the brain. We know now that when we consume alcohol, when we consume drugs, our brain activity and the genes in our brain are actually changing. And things that we do, medications that we take, 
um, behaviors that we do, our lifestyle changes, they can also change those types of activities in the brain. Um, and so I think it gives us a lot of hope for, for thinking about how uh, we can recover from alcohol and substance use disorder. Well, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Carla Kahn, who's an associate professor of neuroscience at Brown University, talking about changing our understanding of addiction. You know, people always say, maybe you're one of them, oh, you know, addiction is all about willpower. You just need to, you know, work harder at fighting the urge, fighting that craving. Well, it's actually about more than just willpower. It's about your molecular genetics, what makes up a cell, how you interact with those addictive substances. And we are bettering our understanding of all of that too. This is Mornings with Simi. About brand loyalty this morning. How loyal are you to a particular brand? Maybe it's just until they do something so dumb that makes you angry that you think, you know what, I am never buying from those people ever again. I've certainly had those moments. Scott Shantz is with us now. Scott, have you had those moments? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's so funny now how in the modern world, companies don't realize that the internet has made it possible for us to assemble and boycott at a level that has never been before. You True, know? but to be fair, social media, we tend to get outraged, but how many people actually follow through? Yeah, that's a good point. So let's talk about uh, a particular case that's happening in the States right now. You're familiar with Kite Baby. Yes. Yeah. So this is the uh, baby clothing company that's supposed to be ethical and uh, they're sustainable, bamboo, sustainable yeah. all that type of stuff. Uh, on their website, it says, we're parents too. That's kind of their slow. We understand what you're going through, parents. Uh, well, the story that's there now is a, a woman who worked for the company couldn't get pregnant, had some difficulties getting pregnant, and chose to adopt. Uh, the baby that they adopted had to go into the NICU. And so this woman asked the company if she could work remotely okay, this, from the NICU. Also, that story, that enough is from you. You still wanted to work. Your baby is in the neonatal intensive care unit. Yes. And you just, you, you're a new mom. Right, you adopted this baby. You're a new mom. This is a newborn baby, and you wanted to work. You just wanted to work from the hospital. Yeah, and I mean, a whole separate discussion is what mat leave is in the states. She'd been working for the company for seven months, so she was entitled to two weeks paid mat leave, provided Simi that she signed a contract saying that she would come back to work for at least six months after that two weeks paid. After working there for a year, it goes up to four weeks. That aside, she was told they would look into accommodating the mat leave for her and then called her while she was like tending to her child in the NICU and fired her. And so she has posted about this online, started a GoFundMe campaign, which is close to $100,000, $93,000 US that it's made. And uh, people are railing on Kite Baby. As well they should, because they told her, "Mm, your job is really more of an in-house job. Like you can't do that. It wasn't that there was a problem with her quality of work or anything like that. They said, no, your job isn't a remote job. If you can't come in, then you can't do the job. Which like we're parents too. Well, are you? Okay. Are you? Because this is, it feels like you're a company first, you know, instead of being parents first. So it's, so then all that stuff, all that marketing becomes performative. All of that is just for show. And so the CEO, her, her first apology was so fake that she got like they gave her a hard time for 100%. that. And then she tried to apologize again. Yeah. You talk about performative. So she posted an apology on TikTok. 
Her name is Ying Liu. And uh, the the apology was about a minute and a half. The video is still up there on their TikTok. It's just Kite Baby is their name on TikTok. And uh, she basically says, you know, uh, this was my mistake and we reviewed our policies, blah, blah, blah. Very lawyer speak. Pretty obvious that she's reading and immediately got lit up for, you know, reading a prepared statement. So she posted another video saying, yes, I'm sorry. That was a red statement. I was trying to do the right thing. Now I'm just going to try to speak from the heart. But it just, it's like, it's too little too late. It comes off as an afterthought. Like, why didn't you realize this first? People are essentially posting videos of themselves burning their kite baby clothing, saying, I'm never going to buy from this place ever again. And okay, so that's my question is, if you were buying a product from a corporation that makes no bones about what they are, fine. But if you're buying because you think, oh, this is a more ethical company, this I'm doing something better by buying from this particular local slash, you know, women run company and they burn you. Yes. Is your anger like greater? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You know, like if I buy clothes that I know are made like, you know, for cheap in a, in a country where people are paid cheap. You are aware of what you're getting. Yes. But when somebody sells me, it's like, oh, you're going to pay a little more, but trust me, we're taking care and we're making the world a better place. You feel, you feel like you bought into something that That, is not true. That betrayal is greater. Yes, absolutely. And it's just such a lesson to me of like how this can affect a company. There's a competitor to Kite Baby called Kate Quinn and Kate Quinn has made a donation to this mother, a big donation. And people are just constantly saying, like sending all my business to Kate Quinn, sending all my business to Kate Quinn. Like a little mistake like this can just cost a company so much. If you're on your high horse, if you were on your high horse to begin with, you better make sure you live those values. Yeah. I love that there's actually some accountability here. That's nice. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Tell us, like, have you ever had a moment like that with a company where you thought you are not what I thought you were and therefore I am not going to spend my money with you again? Tell us about that. Simi at cknw.com. Scott, thank you for that. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And I guess we're based braced for bad news today about yeah. overdose deaths. Yeah, It sounds like it. So that's the regular announcement, but this is a bigger one, right? This is like a year-end tally? Yes. So coroner, Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe, uh, press conference at the legislature building at noon today, giving us the numbers for overdose deaths last year. Now, this time last year, uh, when she put out the stats, she reported that uh, we'd gotten a little better in uh, 2022 than in 2021. There was a drop, about 1%, but with that struggle, everyone counts, right? But I just note that, you know, her year-end uh, news release on this subject warned there had been a spike in deaths in the fall, and it looked as if BC was on track for, I wouldn't call it a record, <laughs> to exceed uh, last year's number, that 2023 would probably be the worst year in BC history for overdose death, overdose deaths, and that is saying something. So last year's number was 20, nearly 2,300. The previous year was a little over 2,300, and I don't know where we'll be today, and I'm not going to try to guess, but uh, I wouldn't expect good news. As you know, Simi, Lisa LaPointe is nearing the end of her term. She announced late last year she wasn't going to seek another term. She'd retire. 
And of course, she expressed disappointment that the government had not embraced the recommendation of her critical uh, review panel of deaths. The panel had recommended prescription-free access to safe supply drugs, and the government turned it down on the spot. Okay, so let's talk about the announcement today and why it's so interesting, like what's happening. Well, she's going to say, you know, what what happened. And as I said, unless things have dramatically changed from late last month, uh, I assume uh, it's going to be pretty discouraging numbers. Uh, I expect she'll make some comments as well, expanding on her disappointment that the government hasn't taken key advice. Um, The other thing to note is that she's at noon and the Minister uh, for Addictions and Mental Health uh, has got a news conference in Chilliwack at 1.30. Now, Jennifer Whiteside, uh, that ministry in the past has made announcements. Usually when the coroner gives us numbers every month and usually the ministry responds with a news release where it wrings its hands over the lack of progress and promises to do better. Uh, the fact that, that Whiteside's got an actual press conference today may suggest that the government is recognizing that it needs to do more. It was Whiteside who rejected out of hand the call for prescription-free access to safe supply drugs. She said that was not in the cards. So I I don't know what the government could say today, but my guess, since she's got a news conference, she's going to say something. She recognizes that the government's got to do more and say it's going to do more. So there will be some news today on this. Uh, I would uh, be delighted to be surprised that it's good news as well as bad news, but there have been no indications uh, of anything other than another bad year last year uh, with drug overdoses. And we still haven't gotten an update on the kind of the government response to that court no. injunction, right? Yeah. So, you know, again, next week, Simi, we're going to be doing stories on the anniversary of uh, BC's experiment, quote marks, with decriminalization. Um, if the numbers are as bad as they're as indicated, we'll certainly be noting that, that Uh, Safe supply decriminalization hasn't turned the corner yet on overdose deaths. But the other thing that's up in the air now, the B.C. government brought in this law last fall that limited open drug use around bus stops and children's playgrounds and a lot of other places that the public would agree with. And the court, right at the end of last year, Chief Justice, B.C. Supreme Court, issued an injunction temporary against that law. The government has expressed disappointment and dismay, and the premier himself has been critical of the decision. But, Simi, it'll be a month this weekend since that decision came down, and the government still hasn't responded. And that tells me they are scrambling to figure out what the heck to do about this court ruling. So that's gone on, do you think, longer than we expected? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you know, when the government is sure of its legal position, you will usually hear fairly quickly, okay, we're going to repeal this, or okay, we're going to live with this, but we're going to change the law. 
and the regulations. Those were the two obvious responses. We've heard neither. The premier talked about this last week. He got asked about it again. He expressed disappointment at the judgment, and he turned to the attorney general who was there with him, Nikki Sharma, and said, do you want to add anything to this? And she just shook her head, no. Her ministry is still studying that judgment. The essence of what the court found, the court found that the restrictions that the new Democrats were opposing or imposing that those restrictions, and I'll remind you that one of the restrictions was no open drug use within 15 meters of a playground, no open drug use within six meters of a bus stop, and the judge said that was too much of an infringement of on the rights of drug users to take drugs openly and publicly. So... You can see why the government was knocked back by it. I don't think they expected that decision. Um, we'll see. I assume uh, they're gonna, we're going to hear fairly soon the response uh, because the clock is ticking on going to the appeal court or the government would have to change its legislation or change the regulations to address the court decision. All right, we're back talking with Von Palmer this morning. We're going to discuss the topic of critical minerals because the government's all of a sudden talking about this. And Von, why is that? Yeah, critical minerals, you'll see a lot of references to it these days. They are central to the transition to a green, lower emissions economy because critical minerals are the things we need to dig out of the earth to make electric vehicles, to make rechargeable batteries, and a lot of the other high technology that goes into, uh, as I say, that transition. So the obvious ones are copper and nickel, but there are rare earths. There's a whole bunch of other molybdenum, other minerals, and BC has a lot of them. Canada has a lot of them, uh, 16 key critical minerals, according to a federal government report, and BC has a lot of those. So the premier this week uh, to the Mining Exploration Association said, we've got a critical mineral strategy. Phase one took the wraps off of it. So it's the kind of thing you'd expect from a government that wants to get things going on that. They acknowledge that it's slow to get permits here in BC. So they're going to make permitting easier. Uh, acknowledge that you need partnerships with First Nations. So the government's going to provide some resources for that acknowledges some regulatory obstacles to getting going on it. Uh, the government is trying to make it easier to explore for critical minerals as well as develop the mine. So phase one announced. And, you know, the initial reaction from the industry is, uh, thank you so much, you're on the right track. But, Simi, I would note too, BC is a relatively late arrival and there's still a pretty big gap according to the industry, in the government's response. Okay, so what, what has the industry said about this? Well, the first thing they said is, as I said, they said, thank you. Right. Uh, and they said, you're on the right track. But they said, look, Ontario and Quebec were there. Ontario's strategy deals for dates from 2022. Uh, Quebec is back then too. So BC is a late arrival. And the second thing they said is, look, fundamental thing you still have to address here in British Columbia is it's more expensive to develop a mine here. So that's already true because of our geology and our geography and First Nations consultation and regulations and environmental regulations, all that, it's already more expensive. But there's an emerging problem with 
the carbon tax. British Columbia's carbon tax is being applied on industries like mining at a higher level than Ontario and Quebec. Independent analysis suggests that it's going to be two or three times more expensive here because our competitive provinces back east, Ontario and Quebec, have protected the industry and ensured that it will remain competitive internationally. And that comes down to scarce dollars for investment. You're going to thinking of doing a mine in British Columbia or Ontario or Quebec. If it's cost more cost effective to go back there, that's where the dollars will go. So the industry's warning that phase one is a good beginning, but the government really needs to face up to this challenge. The New Democrats have not done yet, really, Simi, which is that our carbon tax is being applied at a higher level than other jurisdictions. And you're, you know, you're selling this stuff on the international market. So at international prices. So when a company is analyzing the cost of developing a mine in British Columbia, they already know it's more expensive for some reasons, regulations, geography, geology. If it's also more expensive because of the carbon tax, they're probably going to put their dollars elsewhere. Initial indications are that they're already doing that. Investment in mining is growing faster in Ontario than it is here in BC. Okay, so then is this just a signal from the provincial government that they are, more is coming, or or did, was this it? You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the New <laughs> Democrats, we've seen the same kind of thing in forestry, right? The, the government talks a very good line about mass timber construction and about forestry still having a future in British Columbia and about all of that. But when you look at the mandate letters for the ministers, when you look at the policies that are coming out, there's far more government priority in regulation, environmental regulation, uh, obstacles like the carbon tax, which they're not considering waiving. Uh, yes, they say, yes, well, our industries need to be competitive, so we need to protect them. But the actual action on that front, we've not seen. Simi, okay, there's a budget coming up in February. And that's usually where governments announce tax relief and rebates and changes around taxes. So it's possible that this is in the works. It is hard reading through the government's policies on, say, mining, to some degree on forestry as well, and find actual substantive changes. You find a lot of talk about that but you don't see the actual results. And look, if you're thinking of investing your company's dollars in a new mill or a new mine, uh, you're going to look at the cost effectiveness and the board of directors is going to go, yeah, well, I hear they're talking a good line there, but they haven't really made their industry more competitive on the carbon tax yet. I feel like a lot of this is all these announcements, all this discussion puts a lot of pressure on this upcoming provincial budget then, Vaughn. There'll be a lot of expectations that, oh, well, there must be more coming in the budget. Yeah, there will be, uh, Simi. I think that's true. Uh, the other thing, of course, is it's an election year and... In an election year, you can get away with a certain amount of talk about what you're going to do and vote for us and we'll do this and all that. I mean, you're not going to see substantive results on this file or other files before October the 19th. This is about looking down the road. And I also think, Simi, that explains why the industry was fairly polite in its response. 
They know they may be dealing with this government after October 19th. In fact, if you look at the opinion polls, they probably will be. So the forest industry is careful and the forest industry isn't you know, cutting off the government. You saw Canfor uh, invest last year, announce it would invest $200 million in a new mill uh, in Houston. So, you know, the industry is recognizing it may well have to be playing with this government or dealing with this government for the next four years. So they're trying to tell the government, hey, you should be aware of this problem. Ontario and Quebec are ahead of us on this. We've got to keep up. And as I said, that's a fairly polite message. Privately, I think you find that some people in the industry are worried that the government's going to do the same kind of things to them that it's already done to forestry. Right. Okay. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about cybersecurity with the help of our contributor, Scott Shantz. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm not very good at this topic. See, and that's interesting, Simi, because new research would suggest that, and I... I don't mean I mean I don't mean this in a negative way at all but to me are you, I would consider you like uh are you gen Gen X or Boomer? That is so cute that you are trying to be very careful. You don't want to insult <laughs> I'm me. I'm trying to be careful, yeah. Be, no, no, I'm Gen X. Okay. I will tell you, Scott, I'm 52. Okay. So you're fi- so I, Gen X, I'm a elder millennial. Uh, and then so baby boomers are before us. Gen Z is the generation after us. Right. And I think typically we think of baby boomers as not very tech savvy at all uh, because, you know, they were late adopters to, to the internet and all that type of thing. And we think of Gen Gen Z and younger people as being very tech savvy because they've just had this stuff all of their life. But new research shows, Simi, that Gen Z are three times as likely to fall for an online scam as a baby boomer is. I believe it. Why? Because they just see everything on their phone and they're open and they're trusting and they see it, they're going to go for it. Yeah. And it sort of was counter to my to my thinking. So I, I got in touch with a, a cybersecurity expert. Her name is uh, Jane Arnett and she she works for the for a company called Checkpoint, doing this type of stuff, and she's like looked a lot into the Gen Z cybersecurity thing and why they're so susceptible to it. And I just asked her, like, what is different about their generation? Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. Like, first of all, you know, Gen Z is typically considered to be turning around 25 right now. So that that age group, like 11 to 25. These are people who are very good at doing things. Like when you think about an athlete at their peak performance, right? They're, they're very good at doing things, but it's still up to older people to teach them how to do things safely. I think, you know, like that's, that's what we're, we're kind of there to guide them on. And I think um, part of it is, is that, you know, like just because we look for the, the youngest person in a room to fix our tech problem doesn't mean that they're experts in cybersecurity. The other thing is that, that, you know, they were raised in a world like, like, I remember cell phones starting, like becoming a thing, you know, they were raised in a world where not only is everything connected and easy all the time, there's augmented reality, there's, you know, there are so many online services available today that are designed to give them a seamless experience and services that are incredibly convenient using these, these online connected devices. And I think the risk versus the reward and the convenience is just that that equation really pushes them more towards convenience and less towards taking the time to make sure that everything is 
correct and good and safe. Sure, yeah. We're not using it. And, and that makes perfect sense, too, because, like, we see that with, with Gen Z. At least I think I see that. So what, what does a scam that targets someone who is Gen Z or around that age, what does that look like? Because, you know, like when I think of online scams, I think of, you know, the Nigerian prince or those type of things, you know, like help me get my money out of this country and I'll give you some of it. Things that seem um, really, really far fetched. But uh, like are Gen Z falling for that type of thing? Like what do these scams look like? Okay, so Gen Z is falling more for, I think, scams that are, are scams that sit next to perfectly legitimate businesses online that it's really hard to tell the difference between. So they're falling for like online shopping scams, um, romance scams, investments like cryptocurrency scams, employment scams. And, um, you know, the, the, the FTC found when they did a little study that half of those um, successful scams were originating on social media specifically. And I think it's really hard to tell, right? Like how many times do you do online shopping it's hard to tell when you're going to get the product that you wanted. So then think about something like a romance scam. Or, you know, before romance, let me go to crypto. I mean, crypto is a really obvious one. You've got projects by Joe Schmo in his basement trying to make money off a coin that does nothing but has a dog on it versus, you know, a bunch of MIT students who are banked by, or backed by banks and everything else right next to each other. And again, it's really hard for someone who doesn't do a ton of research or know a ton of stuff to, to tell the difference between them. And they may invest in the wrong place or like a romance scam where you have everything about you online, like that TikTok trend, the get to know me, you know, and that's the way that people are, are putting things out there. So it's, it's really easy. If we think about it in the old school way, like a scam that our parents might have um, fallen for, it would have been meeting these people in person and then they get you to talk about yourself and suddenly this person's, you know, really agreeing with everything you're saying and you're like a month in before you realize they haven't actually expressed an opinion of their own, but suddenly they're trying to borrow money. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that happens online. The more that somebody can find out about you, the more targeted an attack they can make for you, the more interesting and juicy that click bait can be that can then, you know, be the window into them taking control of whatever, be it your phone or your bank or whatever it is. How do we uh, protect them? I think there's probably people who are listening to this that are thinking of their kids. And I suppose the first reaction there is, you know, a little bit of like, okay, finally, like the tables have turned, like kids or or young (laughs) people have, like, you know what I mean? The young people have been um, sort of like boasty about the internet. Like, oh, my parents don't get the internet. They're on Facebook. That means I have to get off of Facebook and stuff. And, you know, now it sort of seems like, oh, older people kind of have one up on, on younger people here where it's like, I need to tell, let's educate you young people about how to be careful and not get scammed on the internet. What does that look like? How are we teaching Gen Z not to get scammed? Yeah, okay. So the first thing I'm going to start at is teaching ourselves not to set up Gen Z to get scammed. So, for example, all those people who are on Facebook, right, when, when we, you know, I, I saw my friends do this. They'd have a kid, and then they're posting to Facebook, like, my kid's favorite color, my kid's first concert, my kid's first pet. And all of the other information that's really the answer to all of your password reset questions where those sorts of things exist. So stop giving away everything about your kids to everyone online. The average home has something like 21 to 26 connected devices, and it can be a lot. 
keep all of the software up to date, but that's really, really important because that's going to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you on the security front. That's uh, Jane Arnett. She's a cybersecurity expert with a company called Checkpoint. And uh, here, here, baby boomers, never let Generation Z or Z talk down to you about cybersecurity. I believe this because I think the older generations, they just know that things need maintenance. Do you know what I mean? Like we're used to, oh, things need to be repaired. Things need to be fixed. Things need to be done. Whereas I think the younger generations perhaps are not as aware of that kind of work, that things need to be maintained. Yeah, and also maybe like a little bit naive about the way the world works. They're used to getting something new. Yeah. When it, oh, is that model old? Oh, is a new iPhone coming out? I'm getting the new one as opposed right. to I've got to make this one work for a little while. Yeah, yeah. So some healthy tips there as well about educating yourself first on cybersecurity and then your kids. Yeah, I could probably use a little work on that too. Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. That's our Scott Shots. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of stories in the news the last couple of days about the potential for an increase in chicken prices when already in BC we pay more than most of the country. Made me ask the question, why? I mean, we know, according to StatsCan, chicken breasts and thighs in BC are more than 15% higher in price than the national average even more so for drumsticks and whole chickens. Now, Restaurants Canada has come out and said that a price increase in chicken would be unsustainable for so many restaurants in this province. So we wanted to dig into why the prices are so high here in BC. So joining us now is Brad Driediger, Vice President of the BC Chicken Growers Association. Brad, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What's it like being a chicken farmer these days? Chicken farming is a lot of work. Um, it's head down, um, growing food and, um, generally, uh, not worrying about or not thinking about the cost. And then you get to the end of the year and you're like, I haven't made enough. And, uh, and then worrying about all of the other production challenges and, uh, things that come our way that, uh, we can't, we don't expect whether it be floods or climate problems, uh, it's it, it's not uh, not easy being a farmer in any industry these these days. Yeah, I know. I could imagine. But can we talk about the chicken prices here in BC for a second? Brad? Maybe you could explain to people why is it the prices here are higher than other provinces? Well, retail prices um, are a little bit higher, but I don't think as high as it's been being reported. I know BC whole chicken is three percent cheaper in BC than it is in Saskatchewan. Um, you said. Uh, breasts were a bit higher than the national average, but like boneless chicken thighs are 11% cheaper in BC than Alberta. Um, and retail prices are not um, correlated to what we're, we're paid on, on farm. For example, I, I get paid $2.21 per kilogram for my chicken. And currently in BC, um, boneless chicken, skinless boneless chicken thighs are $17 um, per kilogram. So, yeah, where, where the heck is that going? Is? Yeah. Can't tell you. Because I'm not in charge of that. Right. Okay. This is I think this is important for people to know though, don't you think, Brad? Because they they see that the you know the chicken marketing board wants a ten percent increase and they think, well, wait a minute, you're already getting lots of money, but you're saying that's not the case. That is not the case. And it's been it's been years, de- decades that uh, BC chicken farmers have been below um, cost recovery. Um, and it's uh, their farmers generally aren't a complaining bunch, and 
but we as the BC Chicken Growers Association representing the chicken farmers do advocate to make sure that we have a sustainable industry that we're able to um, have chicken farms in BC. Right. So right now there, there's a consideration of an almost 10% increase in prices with the chicken marketing board. Do you support that? I do support that. Um, I, it's not even 10% and it's not even, and it's, it's a proposal that's been um, very thoroughly um, uh, consulted. It's uh, over the past four years, the BC chicken marketing board, which is in charge or responsible for pricing um, has gone through the books line by line for almost a hundred farmers in BC looking through every single one of their costs and trying to figure out, Hey, how much does it cost? cost to grow a kilogram of chicken and their the model that they proposed um, is trying to get closer to that cost um, cost recovery okay so let, let's explain this once more for people then you as a chicken grower what are you paid for the chicken that you grow when you sell it to the next step in the supply chain around $2.20 a kilogram. Okay, so then once it leaves your farm, how many other steps does it go through before it shows up at the grocery store for us, for the rest of us? Depends on the, I, I don't know 100%, but like I know that the processors buy it from the farmers and then the processors process that and then they, I'm not sure if they sell it to wholesalers and then who, who would sell it to a restaurant or into, uh, into the grocery store. Um, it, it, it could run a couple steps from from several steps from where from the farm gate to where right. it gets to the consumer. So, are you saying then that if there is like more expensive prices in BC, it's not coming from the farming end; it's coming from somewhere else in that supply chain? Yes, chicken pricing is much more stable than any of the other proteins. Um, you, we've seen the price fluctuations in pork. We've seen the price price fluctuations in beef. Uh, we have the opportunity to have supply management, which um, for for poultry for chicken, which matches the demand uh, for chicken in the province and nationally with the amount we grow. So we're never growing too much. We're never growing too little. Um, but the trade-off we have with that is that uh, the price is um, not high margin, and it's uh, but it's somewhat stable. Right. Has the avian flu, has, has that had an impact on your operations? Um, yes, it has impacts on the operations. Um, it increases the workload, uh, uh, increases the stress of the farmers because um, you don't know if you're going to get it, and, but it doesn't play into the price at all. Okay, so what do you say to an organization or a group like Restaurants Canada, which has come out and said, no, the, you can't keep increasing the price of chicken like this? I'd say that can you run a business when you're not covering when you're not covering your costs, and we've done that for years. They're complaining that they can't, the restaurants can't cover their costs, and I think that's a lot of businesses across BC. We've been in that position for decades, and this is this is not a, a sudden knee jerk reaction. This is a, a long, long, very thorough process and it's not uh, it's just at the proposal proposal stage but it has vast uh, industry consultations as well all right brad thanks for your time on that this morning thank you for explaining it to us
Yeah, no problem. That's Brad Riediger, who's a vice president of the BC Chicken Growers Association, talking about chicken farming. So that to me is so interesting because I was wondering why are BC prices so high? And he is saying, actually, like the whole, the chicken farmers' price, the, more, the before it moves on to the chicken processors, he said is not the problem here. It is somewhere else in the supply chain, which all obviously brings up a lot of questions. Where along the supply chain, other than chicken farmers? Is all this money being made, right? What's going on here? We'll have to dig into that. You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, the pandemic really had such an impact on so many industries. I mean, our supply chain is still feeling the effects, as we were just talking about when it comes to the price of chicken, right? Now, in the tourism sector, the hotel industry really felt it. Job insecurity, income reduction, financial stress, I mean, you name it. A new report just released this morning that was taking a detailed look at that time. We're going to find out what they discovered. Michelle Travis is with us, Research Director of Unite Here Local 40 and the co-author of this report. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. What did you look at in this report? Well, we interviewed women hotel workers across the province to hear about their experiences during the pandemic and as we've emerged from it. And the report really recounts the, the experiences they had, you know, and as the hotel has, uh, hotel industry has rebounded and is prospering right now, we found that, you know, women uh, working in the industry have experienced great hardship and income insecurity. And so what happened? What did they tell you about what happened to them during the pandemic? Uh, it's like across the board, all of them experienced uh, either layoffs, some were terminated. Um, those who are able to work, uh, who are called back in, couldn't cobble enough hours uh, in a week to be able to make ends meet. Um, a lot of them reported difficulty just, you know, covering basic needs, covering their food costs, housing costs. Uh, there were mothers who talked about having to ask older children to help contribute to the household for the first time. You know, kids just out of high school or college age, which, you know, they wanted them focused on their on their on their schooling. Um, you know, and also lots of concerns about their their health and safety. Um, those who, you know, called back concerned that they didn't have it were provided perhaps enough PP&E or enough safety training in order to feel safe on the job. Um, also encountering, you know, angry customers who maybe didn't like some of the protocols that were, were undertaken at the time. Um, older workers uh, also reported concerns about their retirement. There are a lot of older workers who work in the, in the sector. Uh, they exhausted their savings during COVID and really unsure what the future holds for them. Would you say then that that job insecurity, those financial issues, was that the biggest issue that they had to deal with? Yes, that would be the biggest issue they've had to deal with and and continues to be a a big issue that they're dealing with. Uh, Even though some number of workers have returned to the industry, uh, they reported feeling, you know, as insecure or more secure than they did before the pandemic. Um, You know, part of this is because of the extensive cuts cost-cutting that happened in the hotel sector during the pandemic. Uh, the hotel industry made lot, thousands of cuts in jobs in the industry to uh, 
avoid uh, financial losses, but that had the effect of making the hotel work more precarious and also made the hotel industry more susceptible to labor shortages, which we've heard a lot about uh, uh, how the industry can't find enough workers to work in the industry. Yet we workers described, you know, feeling like the, the, the workloads have become very heavy uh, and, and low pay has made it difficult to, you know, have that work be sustainable for themselves and their families. I mean, I think anybody who's sorry, anybody who's gone into a hotel knows how expensive a hotel room has become. You're spending hundreds of dollars a night on a hotel room. Meanwhile, the woman cleaning your room, uh, it doesn't feel like she's got the, the security she needs to be able to support herself and her family. Right. Has any of that changed then since we have, I mean, it's clearly tourism has rebounded and things are getting back to normal in that sector. So has anything changed for them? Uh, in terms of, yes, so I, I would say you know, there were many that lost their jobs. Uh, I think one of the big changes, there are 25% fewer workers working in this sector than before. Um, for those who are back to work, uh, you know, as I said, you know, many of them are experiencing understaffing on the job. They're doing the jobs of you know, two people, three people, and feeling like uh, the work that they're doing isn't valued. Uh, and some people are, again, because of the cost of living and inflation, or some have had to take second jobs in order to make ends meet. What surprised you, Michelle, in, in kind of collecting this and putting this report together? Was there something where you came across where you thought, I did not know that? You know, I think that the, the, the piece that women reported that really surprised me the most was the extent to which they felt devalued by the industry, how they felt that, you know, during a crisis that their, that their health and safety wasn't a priority and that their jobs were considered disposable. And really, so many women talked about how they felt like, look, we love working in this industry. This is our second family, our coworkers. You know, we care about the work that we do. And many of them have worked in this industry a long time and want to continue. Um, just felt that employers didn't hold the sort of level of regard that you would hope. And, you know, these are workers who are providing a welcoming experience for guests and trying to provide a seamless experience. And hospitality is important to them and, you know, want to see the, you know, want to see respect and, and uh, consideration from the employers that they work for. Right. And you would think that some of this would have improved since the pandemic, because as you pointed out, you know, there was a labor shortage and so everything rebounded. And so the workers clearly became on paper anyway, more valued, more valuable to the company. So has anything actually improved for them? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I think what's interesting is that a, a number of the workers reported not feeling like things have improved in the industry. It's just gotten that much harder and it's precarious. It's difficult to be able to sustain themselves on the jobs that they're doing and, you know, want to continue to do that. Um, you know, I give the example of, you know, how expensive it is to own a hotel, uh, anybody who may, you know, enjoy staying at a hotel on you know, a few nights may realize that their room isn't being serviced every day like it used to be. Um, you know, one of the things that the uh, number of the women who work, work as room attendants reported is that, look, when those rooms aren't cleaned every day, it actually makes their work a lot harder uh, because it increases the workload. They have only so much time to clean uh, a room and they have a quota to meet every day. Uh, so it, it, a room that hasn't been cleaned for a few days tends to be a lot dirtier and they need more time to do 
masculine. They've experienced a lot of pressure to, to clean those rooms quickly, and that has an impact on their health. And that's something that's you know, gotten worse. You know, that's something that's worsened, you know, in terms of, you know, experiencing heavy workloads. And, you know, that also increases the risk of injury. That's so interesting, though, right? Because we tend to think the hotel industry has kind of convinced us that it's the opposite of that, that, oh, you're now not going to get housekeeping every day. But that's, that's part of the changes because of, you know, labor shortages and all of that. But you're saying that exactly. makes it even harder. That makes it much harder, and, and, and it does, and again, if you talk to a room attendant across the board, they say, look, the, the workload has gotten much heavier because we're not able to go in and clean those rooms and do the daily, sanit- daily sanitizing that they used to do. Right, the daily um, tidying, and now they have to do the big clean, and it takes longer. Exactly. All right, so interesting. Michelle, thank you for your time on that today. Thank you for having me. That is Michelle Travis, Research Director of Unite Here Local 40, co-author of this report looking at the um, hospitality sector, the tourism industry, hotel workers, and how you know disproportionately women were really impacted by that during the pandemic. And things haven't really gotten better for them since then, even though we are back to going to hotels, back to tourism, back to traveling and doing all of those things. And the industry really has retrained us, hasn't it? Just that idea, when you go into a hotel now, you are prepared to have fewer staff members that you see around there, Uh, perhaps, you know, reduce housekeeping hours, reusing all those towels, all those, all those things that before you would have thought would be done. Now they, they've convinced you that, oh, we don't need to do them every day. Plus it's like a challenge now employee wise, but then you're hearing the other side of that too, is that it also makes the work harder for when the room is cleaned. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Cast your mind back two years. It was right around February the 14th, 2022, when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with the approval of his cabinet, invoked the Emergencies Act. And all of this was in response to the Freedom Convoy protests, which were happening at that time. And now here we are two years later where a decision from the Supreme Court said that act actually was unconstitutional, that it violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, obviously, there is a lot here going on. So we wanted to kind of dive into this. Joining us now is Eva Krajewska, who's a civil litigator who actually represented the Canadian Civil Liberties Association in this case. Eva, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, nice to speak to you. So tell me, how did this case come before the Supreme Court? What was the process? Okay, so one small correction, it came before the federal court. So um, the process was that uh, any decision of cabinet, any decision of the government can be reviewed. So the CCLA brought an application to review the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and whether the invocation of the Emergencies Act was legal and whether the measures that the government took pursuant to the Emergencies Act, were compliant with the Charter, whether they were constitutional. So it came, you know, it came before the court, like many cases do, just a challenge to government action. Okay, and so what did the court decide? So the court decided that the government did not comply with the requirements set out in the Emergencies Act to invoke the Emergencies Act and declare a public order emergency. Now, there were two requirements. The first was that the emergency had to be a national emergency. This means that the existing laws of Canada could not deal with the situation. And the second criterion was that it had to be an emergency that threatened the security of Canada. And the court found that it didn't. So it found that the government could rely on its regular laws, like the criminal code, 
municipal regulations, existing provincial emergencies acts, which we saw in operation during COVID to deal with the emergency. And it said that there was no threat to the security of Canada because the threats the government was re- were responding to were mostly economic threats of the blockades of borders. And economic threats don't meet that threshold. They have to be threats of serious violence and bodily harm. Okay. So as you pointed out, this is the federal court. So what are the next steps here? Is this the end of the road? It's not the end of the road. Yesterday, the government during a press conference said that they would be appealing this decision. So this is next going to go to the Federal Court of Appeal. And then depending on what the Federal Court of Appeal says, it may end up at the Supreme Court of Canada. Right. So this almost sounds like the beginning of this journey, Eva. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, two years in. uh, Yes. You know, cases move through the courts a lot slower than they do in real life. And so it is kind of the beginning of the journey. But uh, someone referred to this as a bit of a zombie because everyone thought that this was done and over. And court decisions have a way of making things come back on the front page. That's very true. You're so right about that one. Okay. So what are the issues that you feel will this will continue to be debated and discussed that that as it makes its way through the legal system, what do you think still has to be settled here? Well, I think I think what the, what this judgment does is it gives a really good blueprint to future governments as to when they can invoke the Emergencies Act. It also says, you know, maybe the Emergencies Act needs reform. If the government really thinks that it needs to be able to invoke the Emergencies Act in response to an economic crisis, then it needs to change the legislation. It needs to amend the legislation. So there needs to be a process for that. Um, so there's, I think there's still going to be a lot of thought given to this. And I think for people who care about civil liberties, this is a really good judgment because it tells the government, look, the threshold here for invoking this act is really high. It's a measure of last resort. You can't do it just for expediency or convenience. And I think that's a good thing for our democracy and a good thing for the rule of law. Right. And I guess people need to read this carefully, don't they, Eva? Because it's really about the Emergencies Act here because there were other aspects of this decision, for instance, where the court found there was no breach of the right to peaceful assembly. That's true. That's true. So we didn't win on all the charter breaches. The court found that the measures that were implemented that limited protest in Ottawa and across the country did not breach freedom of assembly and did not breach freedom of association. That's right. Okay. And there was also a rejection of claims of breaches of freedom of association, as you mentioned, and the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So I feel like people are kind of confusing what might be in this decision. It was a technical win in some areas, not so much in others. Yeah, I mean, we did win that the measures that where the banks froze people account, people's accounts, that those were unconstitutional, that they were unreasonable search and seizure. And we did win that there was a limit on people's freedom of expression. But we did not win on, on all the charter challenges. Okay, so does this change things now, or do you think it, it will be a waiting game to see what happens in the next stage of the legal process? I think it'll be a bit of a waiting game. I think you you will not probably speak to me again for another year. <laughs> well, we don't know that. We don't know that for sure. <laughs> but, but will this lay out, do you think, will this bring about some changes for the government or do you expect the government to continue to fight this? I think the government will continue to fight this in the courts. They sincerely believe that they did the right thing in invoking the Emergencies Act and they 
I think they want to feel vindicated in that decision legally. Uh, but I think the government, I think it also behooves the government to look at this piece of legislation and have an opportunity to, in Parliament and with, with the public to debate how do we use this legislation and does it still meet our needs? Is it legislation from 1985? And maybe it requires reform and making it more contemporaneous to the threats that we face today as a society. And why did you feel it was so important? Why did the Canadian Civil Liberties Association feel it was so important to take this to court? It was so important because this is the first time this act has ever been relied upon. Uh, It was passed in 1985, and the federal government did not rely upon it during COVID, during the public health crisis. It was the first time this action was relied upon. It was important for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association to say that the threshold to invoke this act and suspend people's liberties has to be a high one. It's very important for democracy and the rule of law. So the Canadian Civil Liberties Association was was out there to do that. And there's a really nice, I'll call it a shout out, that's not the formal term from the uh, federal court basically thanking the CCLA for bringing this matter forward and recognizing the efforts of the CCLA as public interest groups to bring these kinds of important matters before the courts because you know this happened as you said two years ago most people it's a long distant memory but the legal repercussions for the future are really important and it's not over yet Eva thank you so much for your time Really pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. That's Eva Krajewska, who is a civil litigator representing the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, They helped bring this court challenge. This was before the Federal Court of Canada. So it's not over yet, as as she mentioned there, that there will this will likely be appealed. It could find itself before the Supreme Court of Canada. But here's where I think people are getting this mixed up, which is why it was so important to talk about it, is that this is just one step in the legal process, the kind of first big step in the legal process. But while the court said that, yes, there was improper uh, invoking of the Emergencies Act, there were other things that it, it said did not happen. For instance, there was no breach of the right to peaceful assembly. The court did not find a breach of the charter right to peaceful assembly, asserting that gatherings employing physical force to compel agreement with their objectives are not constitutionally protected. That's important. That was also important. There was also rejection of breaches of other charter rights, such as uh, the claims of breaches of freedom of association. The court said that did not happen. The right to life, liberty, and security of their person was not breached either. So those were important objectives that I think the protesters were thinking the court would side with them on that. They did not. It's actually more along the technical use of the Emergencies Act, which is why we can say there is so much more to come on this story, right? For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.